Chapter 5 The Three When Sean entered the den, he saw Matt flicking his finger over his tablet, obviously going over some of his notes. Sean had done his homework as well and hoped that today's session would either shed some light or help Matt believe in the current spiritual warfare being waged. Sean, he said exuberantly, please sit down. I'm really excited about today. I really think we might make some headway. Did you have a good night's sleep, I hope? Yes, it was a good night, Sean said, sitting in the same reclining chair as he had on previous days. Everyone was over at the house, and we had a good time. Aha, good to hear. You know, I think your grandfather may have stumbled onto something more significant than he originally thought when he discovered that, um, what did he call it? Matt scanned his tablet. Yes, an underground pyramid. You know, creating a modern structure like that with modern equipment out of subterranean rock would take tremendous effort. It'd almost be like a military bunker, but carved out like an actual pyramid. Matt shook his head. Adrift? Let's talk about the chamber. Okay. Sean said as he woke up his tablet and found the appropriately scanned page of his grandfather's journal. Let me read it, said Matt. The hall continued on for another 300 feet, when it finally opened up into a massive chamber. We immediately noticed five other openings evenly spaced along its periphery. In the center was a round stone table with six stone chairs. Each chair was placed in direct line of each of the openings. On the back of each chair was a single character, and on the table were the same symbols in front of each chair. In the center of the table was a stone goblet carved in the table itself, making one piece. The entire chamber was around 60 feet in diameter. It is here we decided to take our break and here where I contemplated the six symbols. Fernando examined the chamber in great detail, amazed at the technological wonder of it all. He explained how everything seemed to have been carved out of subterranean rock. I was shocked when he called the entire structure an underground pyramid. As intriguing as the notion was, it was my deciphering of the six symbols that amazed me more. They were translated as Reis, Bethes, Nibifasa, Dadas, Tudutan, and Siriusus. They must be names since Tudutan, which I had heard before, was referred to as a person. These names, individually, must play an integral role in the culture in this continent. I just want to find out what today. Matt looked up from his tablet. Did you catch that? His eyes were almost wild with excitement as he waited for Sean's answer. Yeah, I, I heard a but. Sean shook his head. I don't know what you're focusing on. I'm sure if Fairchild had enough time to digest his notes, he would have come up with the same conclusions, Matt said, barely able to contain himself. What? Okay, okay, let's focus on the chamber, which seemed to be the focal hub around the entire structure. How big was it? Asked Matt. It was 60 feet in diameter, said Sean, playing along with the question-answer game. Good, now how many chairs were there? Asked Matt. Six. Symbols. How many symbols? Six. And last but not least, how many cups? Only one, said Sean, desperately trying to be patient. Matt stared at him for a long while before continuing. You don't see it, do you? Okay, let me ask you another question. What is the mark of the beast? What? The number of the beast from the book of Revelation in the Christian Bible, Sean, Matt said, amazed that Sean wasn't following as quickly as he expected. It's 666. Wait a minute, you're not suggesting that. There are three sixes in what Fairchild saw in the diameter of the chamber, the number of chairs, and the number of symbols. Those three sixes are 666. Sean didn't agree, but one number is a 60, 
not a six. Yo, Matt, sometimes if you look at something too long, you can almost convince yourself of what you think it can be when it really isn't. Exactly, Matt shouted. That's what I thought at first. But then there's one last thing you didn't consider. The cup. There's one cup. Right, and if you throw that in there, you know, looking at these numbers and all, it doesn't add up, said Sean. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. And it was this cup that made the difference. How? asked Sean. Matt placed his tablet on his lap. What's the number of the beast in the papyrus 115, the Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus, or the Latin version of Tychonius? Sean shook his head. What are those? I never heard of them. You know, I pride myself in always digging deep and referencing many sources. Well, I looked into other Revelation manuscripts, such as these, said Matt, and I discovered that the number of the beast in these manuscripts is 616. Excuse me, said Sean, shocked. Yes. Sean, we have two different corroborating sources, stating that the number of the beast is either 666 or 616. Now, we have this chamber that was obviously created before the writing of either of these texts with both numbers, knowing that, in the future, both would be captured in literature as the number of the beast. Astounding. Too much coincidence, way too much. What we have here is pre-existing evidence of the beast's numerical signification before it was ever recorded. Sean stared at Matt for a while before looking back at his tablet and rereading the text from the journal. He then weighed what Matt had said and realized that the evidence was right there in front of him all this time. It made perfect sense. Sean continued to silently read the next paragraph from the journal. In light of what Matt had just showed him, his grandfather's words now held new meaning. Looking back at Matt, who was waiting patiently for him, Sean said, there's one more thing. Let me read the next paragraph to you. As I belabored the name on the table further, I placed my kerosene lamp in the middle of the table so as not to obscure the names. What happened next I continued to debate in my mind, but it seemed as though the flames passed from the lamp onto the stone goblet in the table's center. A large flame erupted from the goblet, spilled over its sides as liquid fire, ran throughout each symbol, and then spilled over to each chair. The symbol on the back of each chair became a flame, as the same liquid flame fell to the floor and quickly shot out as a straight steam of fire into each hall. A flame then became lit along the walls of the entire chamber, bringing forth an intense, unnatural light. I was frozen in place as I witnessed this unexpected event. However, the sudden eruption of the chairs forced me from my inert state. I fell back on the floor, frightened by the chair's intense heat. Matt nodded, yes, yes, I considered this already. Why would anyone sit on a chair in flames? And how could a chair made of stone burn? And if stone is burned, its heat would have been so intense, it would have still done damage to your grandfather and friend. Maybe it was a sort of unnatural flame. Could be, said Sean. But the most important thing here that hit me was that this unnatural flame originated from the stone cup. Once the cup was ignited, it practically came to life and spread out to the six chairs. As if it were calling the six, Matt interrupted. Right. How could I have missed that? Later in the journal, Fairchild noticed that the flame branched out into separate directions, igniting some rather peculiar rooms. Rooms which could have been the places where these demons arrived, once called, and later sat on their specific chair in the chamber Sean concluded. What they had there? Meeting? Matt said, as he looked at his tablet again. He quickly flipped through some journal pages and reread the translation section again. After several long minutes, he looked at Sean, 
It's all clear right here in the translations what they were, said Matt. I guess I really didn't want to believe it. Looking at other texts helped corroborate what your grandfather wrote. It's amazing what he found, said Sean. Just so hard to believe that these things exist. It's so easy to ignore it and go on with my life since they never bothered me. So why should I bother with them? Said Matt. Realizing that Matt's enthusiasm was beginning to falter, Sean took the opportunity to read from Fairchild's translation in the eighth section of his journal. We have foreseen our empowered agents extending their hand across the world. Time will allow them to be the instruments of our influence. Their control will outlast the greatest of all nations. They are our watchers and enforcers. They will topple governments, initiate wars, deceive the masses, enslave the weak, and initiate doctrine. Our sovereignty will know no bounds, and as they go forth, we will continue to torment, possess, maim, deceive, and condemn countless souls to eternal damnation. Sean looked up at Matt. Can you continue to live as if you've never heard any of this? Can you try to continue your research, seek more corroboration, and keep an open mind about this but still do nothing? What are you talking about? Matt asked, becoming serious. The evidence is right here in front of us, Matt. You said yourself that you found other texts to corroborate all this. What are you going to do about it? Asked Sean. What are you going to do? Matt repeated. He looked at his tablet and read the text that Sean had just finished reading. After reading and not looking up from his tablet, he said, Confirming the existence of something I previously considered ridiculous is a profound step for me. What I'm going to do about it is a whole other level I didn't even think about exploring. He looked up at Sean. Do I believe in what I read and discovered? Yes. Do I believe there are forces out there beyond my understanding? Yes, the sheer evidence is overwhelming. But what can only one man do against these powerful forces that have been here for a millennium? Matt shook his head. Nothing. Matt's last word shot through Sean, bludgeoning his hopes. He stood up and dressed his host. I guess it's easy to let others do the hard work while you just sit there, out of harm's way, with your open mind and deliberate the immensity of the situation. Sean turned and walked toward the door. Without turning, he said, If you wish to continue our meetings, you know where to find me. Watching the door close behind Sean, Matt tossed his tablet across the room, shook his head, and breathed deeply. He was a man with an open mind, but at this very moment, his mind was closed to his true feelings. He was afraid. These forces had never revealed themselves or bothered him during his lifetime. If he started sticking his head where it didn't belong, his fate could be similar to that of Sir Geoffrey Fairchild. As Pravis considered the report by Keiko Carter, he heard a knock on Martin's office door. Ignoring the knock, he continued to digest the report. When whoever wanted to speak knocked again, Pravis turned toward the door and motioned for the new female agent to enter. Excuse me for interrupting, sir, but I was wondering if you were able to finish reading my reports. I was hoping to enter your corrections and have it uploaded in the system soon, she said. Pravis looked the woman up and down before looking at the desk where the reports still were. He walked over to the desk, looked through each report quickly, and handed them to the agent. They look fine, Pravis said. The female agent took the reports and hesitated. Um. I'm sorry, sir, but I was hoping that you could give me some critical feedback," she said, obviously thinking that Martin had just given her reports a brush off without much consideration. I just gave you my feedback, 
said Pravis coolly. What more do you want? I, well, I was wondering what you thought about case study 2356's profiling of the subject. I was hoping to get some feedback on that, she said, cleverly trying to see whether Martin had actually read the document. Little did she know that Pravis had read the document far faster than any human and processed the information just as quickly. Pravis smiled at the woman. You want to see if I actually read the report? You were a bold one. The female agent took a step back as she detected the pure venom in Martin's voice. Before she could say anything, she heard Martin recite her document word for word from the very beginning of the report as if he had completely memorized it. Martin then gave her a complete synopsis of the report and looked at her in what she could see only as amusement. I, I, thank you, sir. I'm going to go now, she said, confused. Wait, ordered Pravis, stopping the woman before she could leave the office. I have some questions for you now. Yes, sir, she said, looking around nervously, wondering if she should sit or just stand close to the door. She decided to stand. Do you really think my approval of your work substantiates who you are? Does your very existence hinge upon how others define you? Or are you just that unsure of your meager, pathetic life? That each day is a battle just to remind yourself that you have some kind of misguided purpose in life? Asked Pravis as he smiled devilishly and waited patiently for the predictable reaction. Humans always have the same response when confronted with the truth. The female agent felt the door against her back as she obviously moved backwards with the verbal assault from her supervisor. She had experienced people talking down to her before and handled it without a problem, but this was different. It was if the words cut a part of her so deep that her very spirit shrieked in pain. I, I, she mumbled as she felt tears streaming down her cheeks. She stood there for what seemed like an eternity, unable to move. Pravis took a step closer to her and whispered in her ear, but the voice he used was his own and not Martin's. Until you can answer these questions, you're nothing, not even worth the spit in my mouth. Now get the hell out of here and never bother me again. As Pravis stepped back, the woman's hands immediately flew to her mouth in fear. Never taking her eyes off her supervisor, she fumbled for the door and ran from the room. She grabbed her purse and fled the department. The other agents looked at the commotion and surmised that Martin had just put another agent in her place, never once realizing that the female agent had just been touched by pure evil. Pravis looked slowly around the department and smiled as he closed the office door. Picking up the Keiko Carter report, he rolled it and struck it against the palm of his other hand, as if the action would bring some insight to the words he'd read. After several more minutes, he concluded what he had to do next. The report spoke of a deceased man called Bartholomew Yancey, like a prophet Barabbas. Pravis realized that Keiko Carter had interviewed him extensively along with the local pastor, and he wondered if either of them had something to do with possibly, maybe inadvertently, giving her insight to the Genoverian plan. Prophet Barabbas and his tormentor would be easier to talk to than the pastor since Pravis didn't know what level of angelic protection the man held. If nothing came of the former, then he would have no choice but to seek out the pastor and find out what the man knew. It was a dangerous task, but Pravis had to try. Leaving Martin's office, Pravis walked over to the departmental secretary. I'm not feeling well, I'm going home, Pravis said, not waiting for a response. Once arriving in Martin's apartment, Pravis would shed Martin's flesh, leaving him in a comatose condition and make his way to hell where he intended to talk to the prophet Barabbas and his tormentor.
Sitting on her house's doorsteps, Anne-Marie contemplated another poem. In the distance, she saw Sean walking away from the complex. It was way too early for him to be finished with his meeting with Mr. Bouchard, and she wondered if it had gone poorly. She tucked her legal pad under her arm and proceeded to catch up to her son, thinking that if it indeed hadn't gone well, he might need someone to talk to. However, it wasn't until Sean stopped just feet away from the fence that he realized he was being followed. He saw that Anne-Marie's effort of trying to make ground on his long strides had left her unable to form a word in between her gasps for air. Is everything okay? asked Sean, wondering why his mother was trying to catch him. I was gonna ask you the same thing. Phew. Anne-Marie said, her hands on bended knees. Me? I'm good, I just needed to clear my head after my meeting with Matt. We made great progress and learned some new things, but I don't know, he said. What? Henry asked, still short of breath. He believes in what we're doing, Mom, and he knows there's a greater depth to life than what he originally thought, but he doesn't want to commit. He can't get the physical out of the way of the spiritual, said Henry. That's expected. It's one of the hardest things to do, letting go of what we thought was the truth and embracing that. There's spiritual beings all around us. There's a God that loves us and cares for us and a devil that plots and would want. Nothing but kill us all. It's hard to embrace that, Sean. You know it took you a long time to finally let go and to accept it too. Yeah, I know. And don't forget how you knew the truth and still turned your eyes away from God. Don't be so hard on Matt. He's taking great strides. Just be there for him. Some people just take a longer time than others. I guess I was rather hard on him. He reminds me of myself, and I just don't want to see him fall into the same traps and lies I did. Sean lowered his head and mumbled I wouldn't want to see anyone go through the same thing I did. Anne-Marie gently held her son's hand. Everyone's path is different. What's important are the people around that support us during those trying times. And God, said Sean, smiling at his mother. Most of all, Anne-Marie agreed. Sean looked deeply in his mother's eyes, saw the love she had for him, and couldn't even begin to imagine the love God felt for him, which he knew was far greater than his mother's. At that instant, he knew what he had to do. I'm going back to Matt, he said. Anne-Marie nodded. I knew you would, and if you didn't, I'd knock you on your butt to put some sense into you. Sean laughed out loud as he envisioned such a thing. Arm in arm, they slowly walked back to the buildings. No words were spoken, but none had to be used as they shared a special moment, mother and son. Hell, Hades, is not the lake of fire where eternal torment would commence after the great white throne of judgment. Revelation chapter 20 verses 10, 14, and 15, but is rather a place where no one would want to spend an eternity. Unlike the realm where Pravis had his meeting with the inner circle, this place was far more foreboding. From afar, it looked as though it were composed of black ethereal strands randomly jutting out in all directions. The strands' almost imperceptible lethargic motion looked much like the undulating movement of an ink solution in water recorded and played back in slow motion. With its languid expanding and contracting, the ethereal strands seemed almost alive, as if they were some massive amoebic life force. The immensity of the expanse was beyond comprehension, since there was no point of reference to measure its sheer volume. Pravis knew it was enormous enough to swallow several hundred thousand Jupiter-sized planets, with near limitless room to spare. 
Drawing upon a closer perspective, he could see a thick, free-flowing black mist pulsing back and forth. It was dotted with areas of luminous and semi-lucent hues, giving no indication of what lay within. Despite being completely cool to the touch, any contact would cause it to immediately wrap itself around the unfortunate individual and draw him in. This incredible sucking action, again similar to an amoeba, was the barrier that separated it from the void surrounding it. That endless void was a great knot, as if the space itself had never developed and remained in a non-formed state. From this great endless void, there were no structures, shapes, or sounds evident. It was just the canvas on which the amoeboid-like expanse existed. Close to this dark expanse, small objects would appear and disappear from the realm with great frequency. While within the realm, they moved with a purpose as they changed course and altered their speed as they intersected the amoeboid expanse. From afar, they looked like small objects, but a closer inspection revealed they were demons moving slowly in and out of the expanse's barrier. Some were transporting human passengers into the expanse, but never once did any ever leave with them. Their passengers were roughly herded into hell, either wide-eyed with fear and disbelief, or with mouths fully open, unable to make a sound in the void. Many of the demons wore sadistic snarls on their faces as they pulled, pushed, and even dragged men, women, and children toward the dark barrier. Pravis appeared close to the barrier, glanced at its smooth black surface, and immediately felt a sense of complacency. The barrier's slow pulsating enormity seemed to calm him with its representation of human finality. He stood there for a moment, taking in the peace he so rarely felt, as he watched several demons appear with their human cargoes in tow. Feeling no remorse, Pravis looked at the demons that had embraced their demonic nature, having forgotten their original state as fallen angels. They were the perfect foot soldiers, being completely consumed with an unwavering desire for unimaginable cruelty in the torment of the created beings that displaced them, mankind. One demon went as far as impaling a captive with his claws and hurling him against the barrier. As the person slowly disappeared, the demon howled in ecstasy and lunged in afterwards. Refocusing on the task at hand, Pravis approached the barrier, made contact, and shivered as he felt a cooling sensation completely engulf him. For the briefest moment, he felt weightless within the flow of the barrier where all thoughts of individuality and purpose faded. His thoughts briefly merged with every demon entering and exiting the expanse. For them, it was a moment of euphoria. For every human, it was sheer torment as their minds were bombarded with the countless collective of demonic malcontent, a prelude to their soon-to-come torment. When Pravis emerged from the barrier and oriented himself, the sensation and feeling of oneness faded, leaving him surrounded by an endless sea of varying semi-lucent black hues. Being a fog-like consistency, this endless sea encompassed the entire expanse, making navigation and exiting it possible only for its masters, fallen angels and demons. Pravis stood with his eyes closed and concentrated on where the demon he needed to talk to would be. Once finding the location, he turned around and proceeded to walk through the semi-lucent fog. Although the expanse was filled with countless demons and their abductees, there was no one on the path Pravis walked, nor was there any sound other than the soft squishing of his feet on the ground beneath him. Pravis knew that entering any of the private areas reserved for each person's torment would have caused the quiet to be replaced by screams of unbearable anguish. No human ever saw or heard each other, they were alone with their tormentors. As Pravis continued walking, he viewed such large private areas and walked around them, not wanting to enter. 
These detours would have made any trip longer, but time had no meaning in this realm. After numerous detours, Pravis arrived at his destination. Standing before a slightly denser, semi-lucent black, Pravis steadied himself and entered. Each private area was different, so Pravis expected the unexpected. He found himself inside a crammed center hall with nearly 300 followers waiting impatiently for God's message. The sisters were all gathered together in the back, where many of them had to stand, since most seats were taken by men. They were dressed in simple one-piece dresses in white, pink, or blue, much like the Amish, while the brothers wore short-sleeved, white, button-down shirts and blue jeans. None of them seemed to notice or acknowledge Pravis, as he slowly moved around the back of the hall to get a better perspective of what was going on. His curiosity was piqued as he saw the excitement and anxiousness in each person's face. Even though Pravis knew they weren't real, he wanted to see how this nightmare would turn out to be a horrendous form of torture. Pravis backed up against the hall's end wall after several of the figments passed right through him, searching for empty seats in the hall. Even though they were just figments, the last thing Pravis wanted to do was to interfere with the torture as it proceeded. His attention was then drawn to an oversized man walking onto the stage. The man said a few unimportant words and then gave way to the true star of the show. Prophet Barabbas walked onto the stage, dismissed the oversized man, stared at the audience, and lowered his head, mumbling a few inaudible words. Immediately, the prophet lurched in pain as if prodded by some invisible force. Raising his head, he looked at his flock. Arise, my children, and hear what God has to say to you. He said, tears starting to form in his eyes. Everyone in the hall stood up in unison and eagerly awaited the prophet. I was given a vision last night that will change our lives forever. Last night I saw the, saw the end of, I, what I'm going to say is, you need to yield your lives. To avoid it, you need to, need to. The prophet lurched again in pain. Fine, he screamed. You all need to die to avoid what will come. Some of the onlookers glanced at each other confused. One raised his hand and said, But you were wrong, weren't you? You made us kill ourselves for nothing. We believed in you, trusted you, and you deceived us. No, answered the prophet Barabbas, also known as Bargyansi. I didn't mean to. Tears started to stream down his face. They lied to me and... Another person yelled, I took my child's life because I believed in you. Bart stared blankly into the audience as more people began to shout at him. With each angry word he heard, the guilt of what he had done to all of his followers increased exponentially, causing him to stumble and fall under the weight of pain he felt, crushing him. As he closed his eyes, thinking that could somehow dilute the pain, he failed to observe the changing physical state of his followers. Their visage became matted and pale. Portions of their bodies rotted and peeled away. Some hunched over as their muscles atrophied, while others fell to the floor, unable to hold themselves up. Figment demons appeared next to the followers and started torturing them with whips, chains, and their claws as small flames erupted from the floor. As the followers screamed in excruciating pain, Bart opened his eyes to behold the horrific scene. Is this the promise you had in store for us? They screamed in unison. An eternity of never-ending pain and torture. No, no, God, no, screamed Bart. In response to his outburst, a demon appeared before him and savagely struck Bart on the side of his head. He can't help you here. Bartholomew Yancey, you belong to me now. The demon said as he landed another heavy blow to Bart's face. Don't you ever call out his name again? 
The demon looked at the followers and smiled. They do look happy down here, don't they, Bartholomew Yancey? Every single one of them has that. How do you say? Oh, the look of death on them. All thanks to you. Right now, every single one of them, even the children, is going through the same pain as you. You did good. No, Bart mumbled again. The demon stopped his mocking when he focused on Pravis at the end of the room. With a wave of the demon's hand, Bart flew to the wall on the stage. He faced his followers and was immediately pinned as chains appeared around his hands and feet in a position representing a crucifixion. Jumping off the stage, the demon walked through the figment followers and demons to approach Pravis. He looked Pravis up and down, spat on the floor, and snarled. What are you doing here? said the demon, pointing his finger in Pravis' face. Remaining calm, Pravis assessed that the demon wasn't in his right mind to address him in such a manner. Most of them were slightly off in this place. I have some questions for Bartholomew Yancey, said Pravis. This time, the demon spat near Pravis' feet. No, you have no authority here, he's mine. I spent the time feeding him lies. He belongs to me now. Pravis looked at Bart, hanging helplessly from the wall. He's yours, I don't want him. I just have a couple of questions about. I said no. The demon interrupted. Now get out, you're not welcome here. The demon turned around and began to walk away when he felt a hand on his shoulder. I wasn't asking your permission, hissed Pravis in a threatening tone. The demon spun, slapping Pravis' hand off his shoulder. You have no right. Pravis really wanted to avoid a confrontation with Bart's demon and decided to try one last time. I'm going to ask Bartholomew Yancey a few questions. Once I get some answers, I'll leave. Either you step aside now on your own, or I'll move you out of the way myself," said Pravis with authority. Staring long and hard at Pravis, the demon sensed the power the intruder wielded. It was a battle he would surely lose. The demon backed up, asking, Who are you? I am Pravis the Minor, chosen associate to the inner circle of six, and with authority from Rays, Siriasis, and Fasa. Who are you? The demon cringed when he heard Pravis' name, and who had given him authority. He was foolish to challenge a fallen minor archangel with authority from the six. Bowing and moving out of the way, he said, What is my name compared to yours, my lord? Forgive my brashness, for I didn't recognize you. We don't usually get anyone of your position here. Pravis looked down at the demon, who now avoided all eye contact. Then he walked toward the stage without saying another word to the demon. Stopping in front of Bart, he removed the chains with a flick of his hand and watched as Bart slumped to the floor. Pravis kneeled, roughly grabbed Bart's chin, and turned the prophet's head to make eye contact with him. It would have been easy to enter this tortured soul and retrieve the information, but that would have been extremely distasteful. Entering a damned soul would be like beholding his own image in a mirror and being reminded of his own damned state, which was the last thing he wanted to remember. I need answers, and you're going to give them, said Pravis. Not waiting for a response, Pravis asked his first question. How did you learn of the Earth's destruction? When Bart stared blankly into Pravis' dark eyes, unresponsive, the fallen archangel violently shook the prophet's head. Answer me. My, my symbiote told me, Bart said softly. Symbiote? Who's that? Um, said the demon, still standing in the congregation observing the interaction between the two. That's me, you know, spirit guides, animal guides, all that stuff. Pravis looked from Bart to the demon and realized he was questioning the wrong entity. Surely this demon knew just as much or even more than the damned soul he held in his hand. 
Pravis wrapped both his hands around Bart's neck and threw him back against the wall again. Chains immediately formed around Bart's hands and feet again. As he stood and walked back to the demon, Pravis' demeanor grew even more grim than before. Tell me exactly what you told this man in the vision you gave him. The demon told Pravis everything about the vision, how Bartholomew Yancey interpreted it as truth, and how his followers were convinced that, in ending their lives, they would avoid the prophesied plague that would assuage the earth. Who told you this? asked Pravis. It's no secret. There are no secrets when it comes to getting more souls here, said the demon wrongfully thinking that revealing his insights would impress Pravis. Ben, why did you have to tell this man a secret so close to the truth? You could feed him any lie, Pravis said, getting angry. Bartholomew Yancey was a smart man. He had to be told something close to the truth to push him over the edge and force him into thinking he was saving his people. You know, what difference does it make? It worked. Bartholomew Yancey and his people are with us now. It was a good harvest. Pravis' visage changed so drastically that the demon leaped back in fear as he saw dark ethereal strands emanating from the minor fallen archangel. What? Why are you so displeased? The demon asked. You have no idea what you've done. Do you? Said Pravis. These plans of destruction that all of us obviously know something about. Pravis said sarcastically, were foiled by a global terrorist alert, an alert coming from the United States that then spread across the globe. Still cringing, the demon pleaded. Where did the warning come from? Not for me. I only told half-truth to Bartholomew Yancey, and he told his followers, and they didn't have access to any intelligence agency. Pravis stepped closer, and when he was questioned by the FBI due to the deaths of his followers, didn't he tell them of this vision? Yes, but they saw him as a madman. There was no way they could have made that connection. No one took him seriously. Well, it looks like someone did, said Pravis. What? That Keiko Carter agent? She was more interested in talking to that Pastor James and Bartholomew Yancey. Pravis paused to play back in his mind the report from Keiko Carter he had read in Agent Martin's office. The report had mentioned something about an interview with a local pastor, but had never once let on that it could have led to anything significant. Was the pastor protected? Pravis asked. Yes, whenever he was near Bartholomew Yancey, I had to recede. A thought then came to Pravis. Did this pastor know the vision? Maybe, I'm not sure. He did talk to Bartholomew Yancey and Agent Keiko Carter a lot, said the demon. Being too fast for the demon to respond, Pravis grabbed the demon's neck and lifted his body off the ground. You are a fool, said Pravis slowly. Do you know what you've done? Art, said the demon, unable to form any words due to the powerful grip around his neck. If you had just kept your mouth shut, there would have been no chance of your Bartholomew Yancey telling this pastor, who obviously thought enough of it to somehow convince this FBI agent, said Pravis as the ethereal darkness coalesced around his body. And we now have nothing to show for all of the preparation put into this plan. Did you know that Reyes, Siriasis, and Fasa, the three, were behind this plot that you just unwittingly destroyed with your loose tongue? Grabbing at Pravis' hand, the demon tried to defend himself by kicking wildly in the air. Pravis dropped the demon to the floor and stared at him menacingly. Uh, the demon said as he cleared his throat. I'll make it right. I'll get the agent woman and the pastor. They'll let her talk again. Pravis, still filled with anger, turned and walked away from the demon, saying, The damage is already done. 
He paused and then added, Leave the woman and pastor to me. You've done far too much already. And as for never talking again, that'll be something you will have to contend with. The demon was then levitated off the ground and propelled toward the same wall holding Bart. After hitting the wall several feet above the ground with a thunderous thud, the demon was wrapped in chains around his hands and feet, causing him to wriggle desperately in pain. No demon wanted to be chained and bound. It was a punishment reserved for damned souls, not fallen angels. Pravis appeared in front of the demon and, with both hands, forced open the demon's mouth. He reached into the demon's mouth, ripped out his tongue, and threw it underneath his feet. Smiling at the demon, Pravis said, Don't worry, the chains will dissolve shortly. As for your tongue, I'll let the three decide what to do with it. May this be a lesson to all, to keep your tongues to yourselves if you happen to know about something. Pravis descended to the ground and smashed the tongue under his feet. He then turned toward the tortured figment followers and snapped his fingers, causing them all to disappear. Only the hanging prophet Barabbas and his demon remained in the black, semi-lucent room, both for a moment, sharing the same torment. Pravis focused to leave the private area, again to find himself slowly exiting the barrier. Once outside the barrier, he remained motionless while planning his next move. He was sure the female agent had somehow initiated the global alert, but he had to have evidence before returning to the three. With a clear goal, Pravis oriented himself and sped through realms. First, he would reclaim Agent Martin's body and then pay a visit to this Agent Keiko Carter. It was necessary to get the proof he needed to bring an end to this arduous fact-finding job. One way or another, he was determined to get the proof he needed, even if he had to rip it out of Agent Carter's soul.